All right, everybody, good morning. We're going to continue our study of the Word of God. And that means we're continuing our series that we're calling Authentic Church. We've titled our study of the Book of Acts Authentic Church because most people get their understanding of what the church is and even what it ought to be simply through their own personal experience. And that's probably a combination of good and bad and maybe something in between. But where we're supposed to go to get a picture of what the church really is, what its nature is, what its purpose is, is from the one who created it. And the one who created it is the same one who created the world and everything in it. And so it's ultimately God that we need to go to to find out what are we supposed to do as a church? Why are we here? What are we doing? What's going to be our goal and our aim? What's the agenda going to be? And if we're not careful, what happens is even well-meaning believers can get caught up in other ideas, other agendas, other concerns. And over time, they can not just deviate ever so slightly, but even significantly from what God has intended the church to be. And so it's always important for the church to be constantly renewed by the word of God. And this is why I'm, I'm thankful for that classic Protestant principle that's positive that we know is sola scriptura. And what that means is we believe that scripture alone is the highest authority in the church. Doesn't mean it's the only authority that we can't get wisdom from other people that we can't learn from church history that we can't learn from experience that we can't uh, learn from other fields and sciences. We believe we can. But what Sola Scriptura says, that the only infallible rule for faith and practice is the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the Bible today, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to be concluding chapter 4 today by looking at verses 32 through 37. I'm going to begin by reading the passage as a whole. And then we'll pray over this morning's message and we'll get into our study. So Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. This is the word of the Lord. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it 
and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus, who is the true manna from heaven, who sustains not just our physical life for a temporary amount of time, but sustains us for eternal life. And so I pray this morning, Lord, you would create in us a hunger for the word of God, that you would help us to become aware of a deep-seated need that is deeper than all the other needs we are so aware of on a daily basis. Help us to become aware of this, our deepest need, a need for you, a longing for the presence and the knowledge of the living God. Help us to desire the word of God more than our daily bread. Help us to understand as we hear these words that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We ask for your blessing over this message this morning. We pray that you would use it to nourish spiritual life among us. We pray that you would use it to knit us together as a community of grace. And we pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would so overwhelm us with joy that we would give generously and freely out of all that you have given us in order that Christ's generosity might be known to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know, has anyone noticed uh, that the idea of socialism is becoming more popular and talked about? Has anyone noticed that? Raise your hand. Have you noticed that? Is that just me? Okay. Um, and it's kind of interesting, you know, it's socialism in America, for example, let's, let's locate it there, has kind of ebbed and flowed. Um, I don't know how many of you are aware of Eugene Debs. Does anyone know who Eugene Debs was. Um, he was the founder of the Industrial uh, Workers of America. He ran for the Socialist Party candidate for president back in the early part of the 20th century. And at one point he received about uh, a million votes. But it's sort of interesting that socialism is presented as sort of a, a, a catch-all. It's going to solve everything. It's an elixir that will solve all the problems of society. That if we look at what's going on, if we look at the problems, if we look at the inequity, if we look at the corruption, then socialism and communism, well, that will ultimately solve the problem. Now, quite interestingly, some people point to today's text as being biblical proof that God intends to use communism as a tool to bring his kingdom on earth. I don't know if many of you are aware of that, but today's text is actually cited as proof that the early church was communist in nature and that it has divine approval. Now, I want to show you 
not only is that not true, and it's built upon some misunderstandings of what the text says, but I also want to hide out, uh, highlight that I actually understand why some people came to that understanding and why grace changes everything. So let's look at verse 32. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So verse 32 presents the main idea of this section. The remainder of these verses sort of unpack what was happening and why. So we're meant to focus on the fact that the early church, when it was at its best, was one heart and one soul. Now that sounds nice, doesn't it? One heart, one soul. But that sounds like an ideal. But what did it look like? What would it look like if a church community, or any community for that matter, was one heart and one soul? What would it look like? Well, it, it explains in tangible, practical terms what that looks like. It says that neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. They had all things in common. In other words, this, this ideal of being one mind and one heart wasn't just something the church talked about. It wasn't just something that the pastor or the apostles said, but then nobody really did. And if that were the case, I would argue, I don't know that the early church would have got off the ground. I think for many people, when they say that they've been to church, and that's the reason they don't go anymore, many times, not always, but many times, it's because the church proclaimed a very lofty ideal and failed to deliver in any recognizable way what it would actually look like to embody the message they proclaim. But that can't be said of the primitive church here in Acts chapter 4. They were not just saying, hey, through the gospel, God is creating a people for himself. Out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that they are all being accepted equally on the same terms. Not on the terms and categories that the world creates. Male, female, black, white, rich, poor, slave, free. But on the single ideal of being cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That everyone is a sinner and therefore everyone is made just only by the righteousness of Christ. That was where the true church found equality. But we see that the church bore witness to this unity of heart and soul through the relinquishing of their rights over what was theirs. Now you can start to see, okay, well this, this does sound a little bit like what those people claim when they say that this support, this text supports communism or socialism. But let me point out to you the obvious refutation of that idea. Socialism and communism requires that a government is invested with enough power to take everything away from you against your will. That's what it involves. You give a government enough power 
to take away everything from everyone else. And again, socialism, I understand, is not identical to communism. Communism is a more extreme form where the government owns all the means of production. But the thing that people miss when they read this text is there was no legislation passed where anything was taken from anyone. And I think what people have done when they've come to this text is they've said to themselves, look, there's no way anyone would voluntarily give up their stuff. There's no way. And therefore, you have to create a government that'll do it for them against their will. But that absolutely misses the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happened here is that the early Christians were so overwhelmed by the generosity of God, the generosity of what God had done for them. If you think about it, the Christian church was founded upon the greatest act of generosity the world has ever known. And so the early church was a community of gratitude. They were literally people overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And because they were overwhelmed by the goodness of God, and they believed when the Bible says that every good thing, every gift, every good gift, James 1.17, comes from God. The early church saw themselves not as possessors of their possessions, but stewards of their possessions. It was not a human government, but the grace of God that pried the selfishness off of the things that they owned. And it made them recognize that everything I ever get in my life that is good belongs to God. And that I'm accountable to God for everything that I have. And when the early church saw an opportunity to simply give back to God because of what he had done for them, they seized it. They seized the opportunity. There was no mandate issued. We'll see this specifically next week. Because as we begin chapter 5, we're going to see sort of the flip side of this. We're going to see Satan's strategy to come in and disrupt the purity and the harmony of the early church. And in so doing, we're going to find out that the apostles clarify for us that no mandate was issued. No law was passed saying that Christians needed to sell everything. The Apostle Peter declares quite emphatically in Acts chapter 5, he says to Ananias and Sapphira who are lying, while you had your fields, was it not your own? He didn't say, well, you had to sell it, so I understand you're lying because you had no choice. You're cheating on your taxes because you had to pay. It wasn't a gift of benevolence. No. When it's so hard for people for selfish man to understand is why in the world anyone would voluntarily give up what they have. 
So when, a, when someone who's not a believer in the grace of God comes to this text, and they already have ideas about what they'd like to do, and so they're, they're looking for Bible verses that'll support their cause, I can understand how they would arrive at such a justification. But what it bypasses is what the grace of God does to the human heart. And I want you to notice, this is not merely about behavior, and I think that's very important to acknowledge. This message is not going to end. If you were to ask me, well, where's he going to go with all of this? It's not going to be, hey, sell your stuff and give more stuff. That's actually not my message. Because if that's all it is, you miss the fundamental truth that brought what happened here in Acts 4 all about in the first place. What is happening here is that a cornerstone of the world we live in, a cornerstone on which all of human life under the sun is built, the cornerstone on which every other earthly political and economic system is built on is being destroyed and replaced by something else. The basic cornerstone that every civilization, every society, every government, all throughout human history is built on a basic principle. It is more blessed to receive than to give. Human beings throughout time are inherently selfish. That's actually Adam Smith's argument in his classic work, The Wealth of Nations. He's saying capitalism works not because people are good, but because they aren't. People are inherently selfish. In his classic sort of example, his analogy, he says, we don't expect bread from the baker due to his benevolence, but due to his own self-interest. And what that is, is some people say, well, is that advocating selfishness? I don't, think he, I don't think he's doing that. I think what he's saying is he's identifying what I think we all know from our own observation of our own lives. Anyone who's had children and you raise them, you can study world history and the history of philosophy. Human beings are inherently selfish. In fact, the atheist evolutionist scientist Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. And while I certainly disagree with his cosmology, his big picture, I do agree with this premise. Human beings, apart from grace, are inherently selfish. What was happening here in the early church was not a tweak in behavior, but a replacing of the very foundation and a cornerstone on which a society is built. And the, the principle of it is more blessed to receive than to give is being replaced by the principle that Christ himself spoke. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The early church knew that that was true. Not because they went out and did it and it, it looked like it worked in society. It wasn't merely a political or economic philosophy. Now, if we try to boil the Bible's principles and stories down to that, we're going to miss out on its fundamental point. The early church arose at the belief that it is more blessed to give than to receive, not because they went out and did it, but because Jesus went out and did it for them. Jesus didn't come into the world to be served, but to be a servant. 
Jesus Christ did not come into the world to take life, but to give his life, a ransom for many. The early church believed in the story that the apostles shared with them through their three years of living with Jesus, walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, culminating in his death on the cross and his resurrection. Their message was that God is a self-giving God. God is a God of grace. God is a God not looking to get something from you, but to give something to you. That is an incredibly different picture of the gospel. And in, even many people who have grown up in the church in America, sadly, have got a wrong idea about God. They've gotten the idea that the gospel is, it's more blessed to receive than to give. That that's who God is. He just takes and takes and takes. He, he wants you to tithe uh, because he knows that's going to be hard for you and he needs your stuff. And then, and then he wants you to deny yourself. And then he wants you to obey the Ten Commandments. And then, and then he's got a bunch of other rules and he wants you to do that. And people get this idea like God just takes and takes and takes and takes. And religion, rather than freeing the human heart, becomes a burden. That's what many people believe about Christianity. I know I believe that at one point in my life. It just sounded to me like God wanted more from me than he was ever going to give back. And I think day to day when it comes to living a generous, a gospel, gracious, generous life, it comes down to that belief, doesn't it? Do I believe if I give, I'm going to be out giving God? Do I believe God is asking me to be more generous to him than he is to me? And I think what happens is that that selfish desire inherent in us begins like Gollum in Lord of the Rings to just wrap our fingers around the things that are ours and we say, mine, mine. And it's that selfishness that we wrap up that we believe that we don't look out for ourselves. No one else is. That even God is not looking out for our best interests. And therefore, we've got to hold back from God. But what we see in the early church in verse 32 is that they were of one heart and one spirit and no one said, mine. This is amazing. What a world this would be if everyone lived this way. There would be no need to talk about, well, we, we, we need to take this away from some people and redistribute it back and we need to do this. It would not be necessary. Imagine if the early church, rather than being what Acts 32 says they were, imagine if this is what the text said. Now the multitude of those who did not believe were of divided heart and soul. And everyone said of his own possessions, mine. That sounds like the world I live in. When I turn on the news, well, I guess it's Googling the news now most of the time. I see the opposite of Acts 4.32. I see a divided nation. 
one heart, one soul? No, I don't see that at all. As a matter of fact, it's not like, I don't even think it's divided into two parts. I just, I think it's all over the place. Fragmentation. And I don't see a place full of people who are, who are looking to give, who are relinquishing what they have, but rather more and more people who with greater and greater shouts are shouting, mine. What is being presented here is nothing short of a radical reorientation of all of life. If we were to believe the message that the early church believed, and we were to live out the implications of that message as we're seeing it here in Acts 4, 32 through 37, we would be shifting from a me society to a we community. And there's no other way to get there than through the gospel. That's my concern. Many other people, they, they want what the gospel offers, but without the gospel. They want a utopia of sorts. They imagine a world where there's, there's no inequality of any kind. They imagine a world in which everyone has access to this, that, and the other. And, and that doesn't sound like a bad thing to me. It, it doesn't. The fundamental problem with anyone who aims at that kind of utopia and then seeks to implement it through earthly power is they deny the fundamental nature of fallen man. That he is selfish. And therefore there is no system that cannot be ruined, that cannot be corrupted. Every system out there, outside of the church, outside of the gospel, the best one is the one that takes account of the sinfulness of man. Any system that doesn't take seriously the depravity of man that doesn't take seriously what I think Lord Acton said, not just as a student of history, but a student of theology. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And therefore, we have to order our common life together outside the church in a way that provides checks and balances on the reality the people are selfish, they lust for power. The power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. We have to be mindful of that. But make no mistake, God's plan to redeem the world is not going to be found out there in the public square. God's plan A begins here. It begins in the humble community followers of Jesus. And you can imagine what it might have been like to first be told the message, maybe at the marketplace. Maybe one of the early followers of Jesus was a fisherman. Maybe they were a trader of leather goods and they encountered a pagan non-believer in the market and they began telling them about the message of Jesus. And maybe they were attracted to the message and then they were invited to come among the community of the believers. And then something astounding happened. 
They never saw the God who gave himself in the person of Jesus Christ, for he had died and ascended into heaven. The apostles alone were eyewitnesses in that community. But then they saw in the life of the church a community that believed and practiced it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I want to suggest that there is no way that any of us can actually live this out in our own power and strength. And the text suggests this in verse 33. It says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus. But notice what it says next. And great grace was upon them all. What Luke, the historian, is recording here is that while the attention is often on the apostles, and rightly so, they were the specially designated, chosen envoys, ambassadors of Jesus Christ. They were especially endowed with the power of God to perform miracles and to proclaim the authentic message of Jesus. But notice how that message was complemented by the life of every believer in the community. That the gospel advanced not just in word only, but in deed. Great grace was upon them all. If we were to believe in principle this idea of it being more blessed to give than receive, well, how do we go about it? And again, I think oftentimes as Christians, this can become, honestly, it's meant to be a grace principle, but it can become a law principle. It can become the kind of thing where we are begrudging about it and, and we begin doing it thinking, well, God will love me a little bit more if I do this and maybe I'll, I'll score a little bit more points or, or maybe I want people in the community to think more highly of me or maybe I want some status in the community or, or maybe, I, maybe I'll get something back so I'm going to do it. Apart from the grace of God actually convincing us that what we've already received from God is greater than anything we could give back, we'll never live up to this ideal. And I would dare say that's at the heart of the problem in the life of every believer who does not give generously. It's an aspect of our hearts that has not been converted by the gospel. It's an aspect of our hearts and of our minds that genuinely does not believe that God's as generous as the Bible says he is. Deep down, many people think God is a stingy God. And therefore, they live stingy lives. We can almost say it in reverse, that again, the way we live reflects what we believe. I think it's true that what we believe affects what we live, absolutely. That's why preaching and teaching is so important. You can come here on a Sunday, the word is taught, the word goes forward in power, the Lord begins to renew us, transform us, our minds, and then our behavior begins to change throughout the week. That's absolutely true. But I also believe it flows in reverse. 
that the way we live our lives affects what we hear and what we believe. And so we could say if we're living stingy lives where more and more we're becoming selfish, more and more we're starting to say, mine, we can then know there is a deeper problem in our hearts, that that's actually a spiritual problem. And therefore, it requires a spiritual cure. And that cure is not simply give more, but worship more. Believe God for who he says he is. Ask God to show you, God, I, I know in theory you loved me so much, you spared not your own son. There's no good thing you would withhold from me that was actually good. Our confusion is sometimes we, we think if God withholds anything that he's withholding something good. But the only thing God withholds from his children is that which is not good for us now. In eternity, we will see that God's decision on what good he gave us and when he gave it and to how much and to what extent was perfect. There's times in my life where I say, Lord, I wish you would have given me more of that. And you chose not to. And I felt you were withholding a good thing. And then there were times where you gave me too much or something I didn't think was good. And I thought you weren't good because you didn't withhold the thing that I thought was not good. But if we know the heart of God, and we do, because we see Jesus, then we can know now by faith that when we see him face to face, we will affirm that all of God's decisions on what he gave us and when, both the joyous and sweet experiences of life, as well as the trials and even the, the bitter times, were wise and good altogether. That when he gave me good in my life, it was the exact right amount. When he gave me trials in my life, it was the exact right amount at the exact right time. Because his goal was not just to give me a pleasurable life, but to give me a life that looks more like Jesus. And the early church so wanted to look like Jesus, they were willing to relinquish claim over what was otherwise theirs. I want to point out again in contrast with those claims that suggest this is communism, not only was there no law that said anyone had to do this, but it was also not a one-time act. This would be another instance where the Greek language does help to clarify things. The verbs throughout this entire section are the imperfect tense, which means this wasn't a one-time thing. It was an ongoing thing that was characteristic of life in the church. We all know, have you ever had just a super benevolent moment where you're like, man, I'm just going to give like radically and generously. I've had those moments where I was just inspired, some tears, and then I gave, and then the next day you're like, oh my gosh, can I take that back? You know, can I like pull the, you know, I put strings on there, I'm like, oh, can I get it back? The early church didn't just get overwhelmed with emotion, which is what I think people think, or, or they imposed a law and it was a one-time thing, you lost everything, and a new system of government was set up. No. 
actually what is more difficult to believe is not only was there no coercive law that forced anyone to do this, it was not on a moment, it was not in a whim, it was characteristic of day-to-day -day life. It's simply the way people lived. When those people in the church who had more than they needed saw people in the church who had less than they needed, they jumped at the opportunity to give back to God just a thank you for what he had given to them. They jumped at it. It was a joy. It was a delight. And what I want to share with you, brothers and sisters, is a truth that the gospel reveals. That if you want to be truly happy, which I would say is something that transcends emotions, which some like Dawkins would reduce to chemicals, neurotransmitters, is something deeper, what we call joy. And joy is found by living for God conforming to God's image of who you're supposed to be. The more you try to look like the world, as it tells you, follow me and I will make you happy, like the Pied Piper, like Honest John and Pinocchio, follow me to Pleasure Island, I will make you happy. If you follow Jesus, he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. As we live a gospel generous life, you will find that your life is marked by the fullness of joy. Now, to be sure, if that were true, you might be saying, well, then why don't I want to do it? Why don't most Christians do it? As a matter of fact, why do many Christians do the opposite? Their entire Christian life and church experience is mine. They travel from church to church saying, mine. What will you do for me? How will you make me happy? They jump from relationship to relationship. How will you make me happy? And the sad thing about it is, as people live that way, they become increasingly unhappy. And this should not shock us. Because Jesus says, the one who seeks to save their life is the one who's going to lose it. But the one who loses it, for my sake, is the one who finds it. And I don't want to skip over how paradoxical that statement is. Because my natural instinct is to grab tighter and say, mine. I think we all have to recognize that is a natural instinct. You'll, you'll just do it without thinking. You'll just grab on tighter. Just say mine a little louder. But what the message of Jesus comes in and says, I've given you a new nature. There's a new way to live. 
The old you, yes, lived according to the principle of me first. It's more blessed to receive than to give. Yes, the world is built on that, and it's seeking to manage it through the various systems it comes up with as they ebb and flow throughout history. But my people and my kingdom shall be different. Whoever's going to be great here needs to become last. Whoever wants to receive the most will be the biggest giver. Whoever wants to live is going to be the first person to lay their lives down and die. To be sure, this is an upside-down kingdom. And you can imagine, if we don't come back to the Word of God, we will literally be a church that seeks to woo people to a community not unlike itself. That's the danger of the seeker-sensitive model of church. To be sure, I think there's some great brothers and sisters out there that are genuinely just trying to stretch themselves. As the Apostle Paul said, to become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. There's some degree of truth there. But the problem is, if the church is not faithful to the Word of God, what you will do is seek to attract people and grow your numbers by appealing to their selfishness. Come to this church and it'll be all about you. Come to this church and we'll entertain you. We won't tell you that there's anything fundamentally wrong with you. Come to us and tell us if there's anything you don't like and we'll change. But if we truly love people, we cannot leave them as they are. If a parent loves their child, they cannot just let them live and grow up without any boundaries, without any rules. You probably heard there's a, a movement of, of psychology and parenting that, that says it, it's actually wrong to ever use the word no for your children. There are churches that believe the same thing. Don't say no to people. They don't like that. They won't want to come. They won't want to give. They won't want to serve. They won't want to be faithful church members. But friends, some of that might be true. Maybe they won't. Maybe they won't give. Maybe they won't serve. Maybe they won't attend. But I would rather they not do any of those things because of the truth then do some of those things based on a lie. We have to value faithfulness more than numbers. We have to let God's word define what success is, not the business world. And success for the early church was who could give back to God who would live a life that spoke of the generosity of God? Who would live a life that says, the reason I give so much is because I believe in a God who far outgives anything I could ever do for him. And my desire for this church is that we would be the kind of church that is not self-centered, 
but is Christ-centered. A church that is not a me-first church, but a we church. It's a community where everyone is looking for opportunities to bless somebody in some way. And I want to extend this opportunity of ministry to all of you this morning. In this specific text, it's true the application is on material goods. And there are times when that's exactly what is, what is called for, what God has given you, what is needed, what is beneficial. But I think we all know human needs go beyond just mere material possessions. There's emotional needs in the life of the church. There are spiritual needs in the life of the church. There are acts of service that are necessary in the church. And what I want to say that the book of Acts would have us live, if we were to be an authentic church, we would be a church where we're always looking for an opportunity to give in such a way that Jesus is seen in all of his benevolence. If someone is hurting, we don't wait for an announcement. We go comfort them. If we see something on a Sunday morning that could be done better, we do whatever we do to meet that need. If there's somebody out there you know that doesn't know the gospel, you share it with them. Whatever it is, we recognize that this is the way of life because this is the way of Jesus. As this passage ends, Luke records a specific example. He names a man named Joseph. In some translations, it has it Joseph. But in any case, the rest of the book of Acts knows him as Barnabas. And Barnabas is going to be mentioned 23 times in the book of Acts. He becomes a prominent figure in the early church. And I want you to notice how Barnabas, this great church leader, got his start. He didn't rush the stage and say, hey, I got a great gift of speaking. I want to be the preacher. I want to be the teacher. I, I, I want some position of power and privilege. No. How did Barnabas begin his ministry? by giving radically, generously, and graciously what God had given him. No one asked him. He was not forced. He was not guilted into it. He said, oh my goodness, I've been given an opportunity to say thank you to the Lord who's given me so much. And in light of the fact that it is true, he's given me more than other people. I think Barnabas was aware of that. The truth is in life, some people do have more of some things than others. And the gospel's answer is generosity. And I want to say that this generosity supports the proclamation of the gospel. That more people will be come, come to Christ when they not only hear us proclaim the gospel, but they see us living it out in Christian community. You may have heard that it's been said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. The early church bore witness to the gospel 
through radical generosity. It is my prayer that we too will allow what God has done for us to change our hearts and as a church build on Christ as the cornerstone who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you that you are a God of generosity. Lord, not only have you given us every good created thing in this life, but you have given us more than that. You have given us the gift of eternal life. And that life is in your Son. And your Son gave his life for us, laid his life down, died so that we might live. He's forgiven us every sin in our past. He continues to forgive our sins even as we stumble and falter in the Christian life, as we fail. In those moments when we forget your generosity, when we begin to go back to the principle of the world that says, mine, you forgive us even this. And you call us once again to a life of generosity. Lord, it is my prayer that we would receive more today of what you want to give. As we respond this morning and close with these three songs and an opportunity to remember the greatest of all gifts, the gift of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, I just pray now through the Holy Spirit an act of revelation would take place if in any sense we do not get in the depths of our beings what you've done for us. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, by this great grace that was upon all the early church, I pray this great grace would be upon us this morning. That we would be overwhelmed with joy that you would grant us that sense of faith, that instrument of believing, that we would grasp with all the saints what is the height and the breadth, the depth, to know the love of God this morning. And we will be inheritors of all things. We shall even inherit the earth and judge angels, as your word says. Though we die, yet shall we live. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we already know now we will receive not only the verdict of not guilty, but righteous, adopted into the family of God, heirs of Christ. Lord, we just pray we would be overwhelmed with joy. And we pray that that joy would be made full through a life of giving on behalf of Jesus for the well-being of others this week. 
we ask for your blessing and moving of the Spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen.